Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Clamper, your host, and with me today is Wai Lu. Hey, Wai. Hey, hey, Don. Hi, good. You keeping warm down there in Australia during our uh, summer? It's, it's very cold here, actually. We might actually get a bit of snow this morning, which we almost never do. Looking forward to it. Wow. Well, if you want to know how, what snow's like, just ask Joel. You know, being, from, <laughs> yeah. being in Minnesota. Yeah. Yes, right. not yet, but it's coming. <laughs> yeah. And also the host today, Joel Schobert. Hey, Joel. Hey, Sean. Good to see you again. Yeah. Been a little while since we've gotten together, but it is definitely nice to see everybody. Caleb's not with us today. He's a little busy at work. So, but we do have a good episode and a good, good guest today. Our guest today is Ruben Vaughn. Welcome, Ruben. Hey, thank you. Do you want to improve the quality of your source code? There's a great solution, a static code analyzer. PBS Studio is a tool designed to detect errors and potential vulnerabilities in the source code programs written in C, C++, C Sharp, and Java. The analyzer can be used on Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. PBS Studio performs static code analysis and generates a report that helps a programmer find and fix bugs. It performs a wide range of code checks and is also useful in finding misprints and copy-paste errors. There's a good opportunity to get a month-free trial and save your project from bugs. Follow the link in the bio, download PVS Studio for free at devchat.tv slash PVS and use the promo code ADV.net, A-D-V-D-O-T-N-E-T. So uh, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction of who you are and how you got into development and what you do? Cool. Yeah, so I'm Ruben Bond. I'm engineer at Microsoft. I work on the Orleans team. I guess we'll talk about that in a bit as part of actually the Xbox org at the moment. So it's structured under there. You very must be busy. <laughs> oh, yeah, especially now. It's it's very busy. A lot of people playing games at, at the time. Do you actually see a big load that you can see, like just from COVID, everyone staying at home and playing video games? Yeah, we saw some numbers earlier, I think a few months ago. And I think there was a pretty substantial increase. I think as Phil Spencer maybe said, said it's kind of unfortunate to have an increase for that reason at the same time as you know there are good and bad aspects to it mm, sure right well i don't know playing lots of games it seems like a good thing no matter what but <laughs> so how did you get into uh, .NET development and things like that so so like a lot of people i actually wanted to build games from a young age and so i started messing around trying to build games in c originally and eventually got kind of more interested in distributed systems like how to make computers talk to each other and collaborate with each other. I guess around the time that the peer-to-peer things like Nutella and Napster and file sharing was kind of becoming popular. And so that got me interested in it. And eventually I got to .NET actually through Microsoft. I interned there and it turned out they were all developing in C Sharp. And at the time I was a real stickler for like native technology, like, you know, down to the metal because I thought that was the only way to get good performance. It turns out I was totally wrong and getting more wrong every day as performance improves there. But anyway, that's essentially my story. So a lot of games are now written in C Sharp. Oh yeah, totally. So I actually joined on the Azure Active Directory team. So, you know, part of MS ODS or part of Office 365. But eventually after leaving, going back to Australia, doing a startup, I got roped back in and eventually tricked into coming back to Redmond and now working as part of this games org on Orleans. So originally it was, you know, very different kind of businessy sort of slant to it. So can I write a, an Xbox game in C Sharp using Visual Studio and something like that? Or? Yeah, 
there, there's like XNA or Mono Game, for example, and of course Unity, which is hugely, hugely popular, which I think is doing great things for .NET and for C Sharp. And even on Unreal UDK, you can write in C Sharp. I think a lot of games, a lot of very competent games are written in .NET now. Very cool. So why do you kind of want to lead us today? Okay, sure. So yeah, so what is so what is Orleans? Do you want to just give the viewer just a very basic rundown of what, what it actually is? Is it related to gaming? Is it um, is it, is it something else? Yeah, sure thing. So Orleans actually has no real bearing on gaming at all. And it was framework for building distributed applications. And it came out of Microsoft Research. It just so happened that it first found its footing in gaming as part of Halo. I think around 2014, maybe, was when Microsoft first started talking about Orleans. I think it was a build conference in 2014. And they showcased how they're building all those online services using it. And so that's where it saw a lot of its initial popularity. And then over time, it started getting adopted in other services. I talked about them recently at .NET Conf, things like Azure ML, Azure IoT, Dynamics Broad Protection, Skype. There's a, there's a whole bunch of services around Microsoft that are built in part or largely on Orleans. But the core idea there is how do we make distributed systems, distributed large-scale applications easier for people to develop? So how do we take regular, plain old client development techniques like you know objects and try-catch method calls, things like that, and then make them applicable to a distributed systems world where you've got lots of machines trying to, trying to collaborate with each other, you've got communication failures like network failures or machines go down, things like that. You have scale out, scale in, all these kinds of problems like these, they have these fallacies of distributed systems like, you know, that the network is, is reliable and the clocks are synchronous and, and all sorts of things like that. And developers have to deal with those. And so Orleans helps dealing with a lot of those things and getting scalability kind of by virtue of the programming model, like how you develop these things. And so it attracted me immediately. I, I wasn't really in Involved in any of the initial development at all. Joined several years later, but it attracted me so much that I ended up contributing to it in an open source capacity first. I was just like, hey, you know, what if we made the code generator work using Roslyn instead of Code DOM and string interpolation? And like from there, I started making bigger and bigger kind of contributions until eventually I joined full time on the project. Okay, that sounds that sounds really interesting actually. Because yeah, like I've, I've tried to contribute to big open source projects before. I just find it really hard to actually understand like the code base. I imagine Orleans would be a really big code base. Like how did you even get started on making your first contribution? Like was it how did you understand the code base to even begin with? So the the first contribution actually, I was ready for it. Like I sniped that thing. I yeah. knew that there was this like overflow in a particular setting. Like if you would set this one setting to a value that was too high, it would overflow in like a way that was, you know, not desirable. Like you would set some time out over 30 minutes or maybe it was 30 days or something. And then the system would throw in bark at you. And I decompiled it and I knew which line of code I wanted to change. And then when they open sourced it, I was like, I'm going to fix that thing. And so I submitted <laughs> a change. It was like a one-line fix to fix some reminders system. We have these persistent schedules, reminders, we call them. And so that was my first thing. And I guess I kind of incrementally did a few other changes from there and it started to snowball. But it was, I think it helps to have a good welcoming community and like an, and a welcoming development team. That makes a big difference, I think, when you're trying to contribute to open source. And 
and especially because in a lot of open source projects, you're having people from all around the world. And these people have very different backgrounds and more importantly, very different styles of communication, right? So sometimes you might get someone in some cultures, people speak a little bit more directly and to the point. In other cultures, people are a little more roundabout when they're trying to make suggestions. And so you have to kind of interface between that and understand like, hey, people in the community, they're not trying to be offensive to each other and try to help them to resolve those things. That's actually, uh, I guess, a non-trivial part about managing now a large open source project like that. But anyway, it helps to have nice leadership that is that is trying to help everyone get along and encouraging these kinds of contributions. Yeah, I think it's always kind of a bit nervous when you first join any open source project. Yeah, cause you, don't, you don't know the culture and you, you don't know if what you're submitting is correct or if it's just categorically wrong or, or whatever. And you <laughs> But sure. yeah, cool. Yeah. So so basically, all is all open source, and you your day job is just submitting pull requests. <laughs> I wish. All Ins is fully open source for sure. I think it, it's been open source since maybe January 2015. I, I believe it was one of the first open source .NET projects from Microsoft, you know, after this whole new shift towards open source things. But my day job also involves a lot of helping internal teams out with like architecture reviews, diagnostics, and, and there's a lot of that, that kind of thing. Like, hey, you know, we, we've got this large scale application. Uh, we're hitting some trouble over here. Can you help us work out what's going on? on. So I spend hopefully enough time doing pull requests, but there's also a maybe overly healthy amount also helping other teams with their large scale systems. So in a distributed system, you know, what actually gets distributed? Is it just users or is it individual tasks? Or what's what's actually the distributed part out of the system? That, so that's a, that's a fair question. It, essentially, distributed systems are very broad. It, it includes anything like clients talking to servers. But then as you go further along this spectrum from like single clients, self-contained applications all the way up to fully symmetric peer-to-peer applications where all of the machines and all of the processes in the system are on equal footing, communicating and collaborating with each other. At some point in the middle, I guess, is you know something more like Orleans, where you have control over the data center that you're deploying it to. It's not like BitTorrent or you know Bitcoin or something else like that, where you've got these potentially hostile nodes communicating with each other, but they're, they're friendly nodes, they're yours uh, in Orleans, and you're distributing work. So you have in Orleans, it happens to be grains, which is our type of object that gets distributed around. And, and basically, they're like C-sharp classes. So you have these classes, let's say it might be represents a user, or it represents a game session, or it might represent, in, in a case within Microsoft, we have this PlayFab team. It's back-end services for game developers. And one of the services in there is for monetization. So things like handling in-app purchases, handling items and currencies within a game. And in that case, they have a grain, these distributed objects that represent like a player's inventory, their wallet. And so these things get distributed around this whole cluster of machines that Orleans helps you to form and maintain. And it helps you to distribute them out and then communicate between them by making asynchronous method calls, you know, await some grain dot, you know, transfer money, that kind of a style of programming. And so you distribute all of that computation and objects around this cluster. So when a developer uses Orleans for doing this, do they have to configure what and where the distribution happens, or does it kind of do it for them? So the developers do get a, a degree of control over it. They can say, okay, for 
these types of objects, these types of grains, I want them to be as close together as possible. So whenever I make a call to it, I want it to always try to get created or activated, we call it, locally. Or they can say, I want these things to be randomly distributed around the cluster. Or they can they can have control over this with their own code and they can say, I want to create instances of this object closest to where the resources that it needs live. So say, for example, you've got a system that's processing large amounts of data and you've got that data on hard drives around your cluster. You might say, okay, I know that this, this object needs to have access to some specific data. So I'm going to go and create it or try to create it over there on that machine. So the users do get control over it. But by default, Orleans will just do it all itself. It'll balance it. And how do the grains communicate with each other? Like, are they they're just using HTTP calls or is this something that you define yourself specifically, the application you're building? So you define this communication interface using C-sharp interfaces. So you might have yeah. an interface like iUser and it might have, you know, get or set display name, like methods like that on it. And then that interface is used to generate an RPC contract similar to gRPC or, or something like that or, or WCF even. I don't know if I'm pulling up bad memories for people. Similar <laughs> to w, WCF where essentially that becomes a proxy for how you talk to it. And then under the hood, we'll, you know, generate RPC stubs and dispatches and serialization types and then flow that method call all the way across via TCP. And that networking stack that we use there is actually built Again, as a collaboration between us and the ASP.NET folks, it's built on Bedrock. So if you're familiar with the Bedrock project, which was this project in, in Kestrel, ASP.NET, to make high-performance networking layer, we, we built our networking on that. So how many nodes, you know, might, might be typical in a distributed system? How many does it take minimum? And is it unlimited what it can go up to? And So in the case of Orleans, you can run on a single node. And if you want to do development, like that's to- totally a typical kind of thing. You might just run a single single node and test your stuff or run a proof of concept kind of server and that's all fine but a typical kind of scenario might be that you would have let's say at least five at least five nodes for a good amount of reliability and distribution but more commonly maybe more like 10 to 40 nodes and we've seen systems i think 200 around there might be the max for at least a single cluster but i've also heard of systems running on up to 96,000 cpu cores which is i believe mm. gigantic I don't know if that was a single cluster or if it was a constellation of clusters that they were running, but it's a large so, deployment. Sounds like what is it? What is a node in this context? Are we just talking just like a, is a node just a computer or a server or something? Yeah, sorry, D- distributed systems node kind of speak. It, a node is just any. It, it, it's usually just a host. It can be a container or a service fabric process. Typically, the uh, users running inside the Kubernetes. So you might just have a container that spins up a .NET Core process. And inside that process, you'll host Orleans. Maybe you'll, you'll host Kestrel and SignalR or something else as well. Yeah. But, but Orleans will be in there. Okay. So things like um like serverless and like Azure functions and like are they running off something similar to this? Like is that, is that the same pattern? This, so as your your functions is more for say stateless kind of computation, and that started off as I don't know if you remember web jobs, which was kind of like an extension to Azure websites, I think at the time. And the idea there, it's there are some similar concepts, but the idea there is it's not these functions, they don't have identities to them, right? So you just say, I want to call some function with a name, but there's no like, let's say I don't want to call user 42. I just want to call into the user, you know, get wallet function, for example. And so the major difference between the two is that functions are standalone functions, whereas in Orleans, you've got classes. They work together, I think. There's more 
coordination, do you think, in a, in Orleans than in functions where they just do one thing and then they, they die or they, they shut down? Yeah, that, that that's a way of saying it. So in Orleans, because it's stateful, these objects have some properties and, and things that stick around with them. And so when when you load them up, they, they load up automatically into, into the process. They'll hang around while they're needed. And then eventually the runtime will you know, put them away. But, but then one of the major differences is that when you're making repeated method calls against an object, you don't have to hit the database multiple times. You hit the database once, load your state. If you're ever going to modify the state, then sure, you write it back to the database, but you skip that first round trip there. Whereas with the functions kind of model, because it's stateless by its nature, mm. every request you're going to go and hit a database, load some data, maybe you'll mutate it, maybe you'll put some stuff on a queue or whatnot, and then you'll write back to the database if you modified it before you return back to the user. Huh. So that's interesting. Though. You're saying that drains are, or leans is stateful, but they're all sitting in multiple nodes. How do they maintain the same state? Or we might think about this completely wrong. Well, think about it this way. You might have a user, you know, like a Ruben user object. And yeah. that whole thing is self-contained. So that's only going to live in one place in that whole cluster of nodes at any given point in time. So yeah. when I want to make a call, you know, between two users, it might one one user might be loaded on node A or process A, and then the other one is loaded somewhere else in the cluster. And Orleans manages that manages that routing for you. So you don't need to know, okay, now I've got a call into node B and blah, blah, blah. It just mm. says, okay, you want to make a call from here to there? I'll deal with it. Don't worry about the specifics. I'll just make sure that that call gets there. And if that object, that grain didn't happen to be loaded over there, it'll make sure that it's loaded somewhere for you. So it'll load it up into memory, load its state, and then allow it to process those requests. You know, Ruben, that's interesting talking about the stateful versus stateless. And you were talking about like what some of your time is spent on now is helping other teams do diagnosis and stuff. I've worked a lot on large stateless systems and what I found on those is to actually debug or diagnose problems requires a very senior person. And part of the reason in my experience was that really being able to visualize the whole system and the different parts and where state was coming from and how it mixed together required just a lot of experience before you could actually go in and start to kind of divide and conquer and figure out where a problem actually was. I would imagine with a stateful system that could be even a little more complex. Have you found that both testing, setting up a testing system as well as doing diagnosis is fairly complex with a system like Orleans building a large distributed system? I think that it's it ends up, like you said, it ends up being complex anyway. One thing that might be different in Orleans that, that differs from, say, a stateless system is that all requests for a given object, maybe maybe there's some problem with one particular object, right? It's playing it. It's like this user is misbehaving, right? Other users are fine, but this one's misbehaving. One advantage of having it stateful is that user exists only on one node. So if you need to take a memory dump or capture profile traces, you go to that one node, you can see in the logs or however you're doing it, you can see where it is, capture a memory dump, you can inspect it and say, oh, okay, you know, it, it looks like it's getting hammered, there's a lot of requests, they're all slow, and so eventually the queue is growing and it's timing out, as an example. Or, hey, that node looks like it's unhealthy for this unrelated reason, but thankfully you can kind of single it out to a particular part of the system, hopefully. Now, that doesn't go for every case, and I think that 
what you said about, hey, on any of these large systems, you tend to need someone more senior who knows how to debug and diagnose these kinds of problems and probably is pretty comfortable with analyzing memory dumps or analyzing profiling traces, CPU samples, has some idea about how the garbage collector works and the thread pool, things like that. I think that that still remains true for any system. Orleans helps you to develop these things and to make large-scale, scalable systems that are high-performant, but it can't get rid of that, that kind of core requirements still, even if it even if it helps you. I would think it's too much more complex though than debugging a stateless system. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing that we always had to discuss with people is the difference between there you can have on the one hand complexity because maybe you choose chose a poor tool or had a bad architecture and you end up with a system that's much more complex than it would needed to have been. You can also have a different kind of complexity, which is just the fundamental domain or problem is very complex and nothing's ever going to get simple. And I feel like distributed systems tend to be in that second category most often. Your, your fundamental domain is actually fairly complex once you're setting up distributed systems. I, I tend to agree. I think that there is some amount of irreducible complexity just by the fact that you've brought in this whole question about which machines or which parts of this giant computer that I've you know, fabricated, which parts of this system are failing. And, and if you think about it, actually, if you have any substantial, significantly large system with enough machines, there's no such thing as this system is up or this system is down. It's more like the system is always failing to a degree, right? Like there's something wrong with some node somewhere, like if, if you have something that's very large, right? Or at least probabilistically, it becomes more and more true, right, as you grow. And so you have to think about like partial failures and, and problems like that. Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great, like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier. Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up, and it actually helps you debug stuff in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and, and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in Code Rush is awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis, so they'll pick out some of the issues maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues that'll point out code smells, it'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests. So go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com slash products slash Code Rush, or just go to devchat.tv slash Code Rush, and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv slash Code Rush. You know, and the second part that goes along with this is, you know, let's say you had a production production problem and it's on the production servers, but you don't want to tinker around there. Maybe your company has a policy against that. Financial institutions might have that or other type of institutions with a lot of security or a lot of risk. So what we found is it was typically very difficult to go and set up a test system because you need a user and the user has to have an ID and you, you probably have to log in and have that login user. Well, the user means nothing by itself. Maybe it has a game 
there's some state that needs to access or like a wallet and different things. And so the number of objects and data pieces you had to have to have a meaningful test platform was fairly expansive. And again, only someone who understood large parts or maybe the entire system could even create sort of a test bed, so to speak. Does Orleans have certain tools that can help with that and make it a little less difficult of a problem? Or is that, again, just the domain of the problem is always going to be somewhat difficult? I think that because some of those things are just part of the domain, like, hey, we need to have users and purchase orders and and whatnot, and they need to interact in certain ways. I think because of that, you end up having to have someone go and do that investment to make realistic workloads so that you can run tests. Either that or you bifurcate traffic and you end up splitting a little bit off into some test system so you can do diagnostics. Like there is a few systems within Microsoft where we do that. I think it's one of those problems where you really do need to do it. And a lot of people, because of that difficulty, they end up not doing it because it's difficult or they they end up letting that test suite stagnate and maybe no longer represent a real world system with real world interactions. And then their diagnostics suffer because of it. You know, doing scale testing is extremely important and profiling your, your system under load is very important because a lot of things will only happen when the system is pushed to the brink. Yes. So for the, the developers that are out there that aren't using a distributed system, what might be some indicators that they, that would be a good thing for them to kind of move to? Yeah, so I think that at, at some point, you, you may find that a single, a single machine is not going to be enough to serve all of the load that you have, or at least at peak, right? And, and in those kinds of cases, you need to start thinking, how do I scale this system outwards so that I can support more, more load, more users, or maybe I have more complicated workflows happening? But at the same time, I still want to keep a handle on the conceptual complexity that any developer needs to think about, right? So developers need to have these, these concepts in their brain like here's the scope of what I'm working with and here's how it might fail. I think Orleans helps in those kinds of cases where you want to keep some sort of bound on that and have some scope you're working with. But anyway, I, the point stands that, you know, at some at some certain level of load, you're going to need to go distributed because a single machine is either going to be too prohibitive to make, too prohibitively expensive to make it scale upwards to what you need, or you're just not going to be able to do it just because of the, by virtue of the problem. Or maybe you can handle load just fine, but you don't want to deal with downtime. Like if you've got a single server and that server needs to have updates, you know, Azure or whatever cloud infrastructure can pause your virtual machine for say 30 seconds while the underlying host operating system is being upgraded or migrated around, for example. And if you don't want to have to deal with those kinds of problems, then you might have to go distribute. So how does somebody get started with Orleans and what what would kind of the, be the first thing that they would write as a proof of concept project to, to learn how to do a distributed computing? Well, there's, there's a few samples in the in the repository it's on github.com slash dot net slash orleans and they can hopefully walk people through some maybe not very realistic kind of scenarios because they're just sample applications i think there's things like tic-tac-toe an adventure game and a few other samples that show how to integrate with asp.net and blazer uh, service fabric currently we're lacking a kubernetes sample which is something that i really need to push for and develop but hopefully that's enough for them to get started and if not we also have a warm community on Gitter where we, you know, newbies can come in and ask questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. And a lot of people come in and answer them. Or some ambitious listener out there could write that Kubernetes example for you. (laughs) 
I would love that. <laughs> actually, on on the topic of Kubernetes, actually, is is this kind of like is this is this is all things kind of similar to Kubernetes? Is this like Microsoft's version of Kubernetes, or is it or are they two completely kind of different approaches? I think that they they operate at different layers of the stack. Kubernetes is managing your fleet of machines and allowing you to distribute an application like your your binaries around those machines and keep them running, but it doesn't offer anything at the programming model. So it doesn't help you to write applications that make use of those machines very well, but it does help you to keep your application running those machines individually. So Orleans is a layer up. We run typically on top of Kubernetes and then help the machines to work together, right? So if you want to make use of them, then Orleans can help you there. So how has the, we just did a review of some of the stuff that came out of the Microsoft Symposium and they were talking about numbers of people using .NET as well as a lot of different tools. And there's been like an amazing growth over the last few years. How has the adoption of Orleans gone for the company in, in the years that it's been out? And what are sort of the goals and targets for it? In terms of firm numbers, we don't have numbers on adoption. We don't capture any telemetry or any of that. I believe if we look at NuGet, I think there's certainly over a million, maybe over 2 million downloads now, maybe even more than that. I'm, I'm not sure. But I guess qualitatively, internally, we see a lot of adoption within Microsoft. And externally, we see a lot of successful companies building on Orleans. There was one I touched on during that .NET Conf, which was Gigia. And they're a company that eventually sold to SAP. And they're using Orleans for creating a uh, identity management suite and very successfully. I know of others, Uscan, for example, which is out of Russia. They do social media analytics. But we don't we don't have numbers that track like, hey, here's how many daily active users we have. You know, the kinds of things that we would do with like an online service where we have Mao and Dow and unique users and things like that. So we, so we talked about when you're developing locally, you can just run like one node and do something something that way, but does Orleans have an emulator for when you're running locally to have multiple nodes for local development? We actually just run the full-scale regular Orleans. In, in fact, in the unit test suite, we run multiple copies of it in the same process. And so it, it's fine in that you can scale down to one node and run you know, 20 of them in a single process if you want to, which is nice because you're running the same exact code locally as you would in production. Yeah, very cool. More questions. Do you have any cool examples of people that are using Orleans? Yeah, I talked about a, a few of them in that .NET conf. Um, the one that the ones that I'm really most closely related to are the ones within Azure PlayFab. And one example there is this monetization service, which is called the PlayFab Digital Economy. The idea there being that, you know, you allow game developers to more easily integrate in-app purchases, like for example, with the uh, Google Play Store or with Apple's iOS Store, the App Store, and you give them like a consistent way of dealing with that. So, you know, let's say a user cashes in in-app purchase and they want to get an item that corresponds to that in-app purchase. And so this manages that in a transactional way. And one of the interesting things there is that you can actually run distributed transactions between multiple of these grains. And Orleans will make sure that it happens, you know, with isolation and all of the other ACID properties, which, which I guess is a much more advanced kind of scenario. But it also shows like a simple, conceptually simple kind of thing where you've got, you know, players and the players have wallets and they're all kind of independent. And then sometimes they interact with each other. But for the most part, you're just spreading these isolated units around this cluster. Uh, another case is actually what a lot of game servers themselves run. Like, let's say, you know, Halo, for example. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about specific games in the industry that, that use PlayFab multiplayer services. Yeah, we won't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but but we have like hundreds of thousands of VMs around the world that are running game service for people. So when you want to play a game of Halo, let's say you, you want to match, PlayFab's multiplayer service will go and provision a VM that's close to you and your friends. That VM will already be running the game ready to go for you. So you don't have to spend a lot of time waiting for this thing to you know, boot up and download the game files and, and actually execute the game. So the control plane that sits above all of these hundreds of thousand VMs is this other Orleans solution. And so that thing will go and, you know, follow game developers' definitions of, of how a game should look, download the bits and make sure that it keeps like a sufficient number of virtual machines running with this game server in the right configuration at any point in time. And so you might have, you know, in that case, I think maybe 40 nodes that are managing this whole worldwide system. So would a node in that context be one of the VMs or would it be one of the gamers that are playing? In, sorry, in that context, a node is a server. So you'll have servers in this case, running on service fabric, if you're familiar mm. with it, and there'll be .NET core processes on those on those servers. And so there's, let's say, 40 of them. I think it might be more. Maybe it's like 60. And they orchestrate all of these VMs. They make sure to keep them healthy. Um, if they're not healthy, then they'll get rid of them, return them back to Azure. And if they need more, then they'll provision more from Azure, put the right images on them, get them booted up and ready to run. Mm. So it sounds like Orleans might actually help you then with, in some sense, load leveling across your different, your mesh of actual hardware. And so what I'm getting at here is in a lot of distributed systems, you can distribute the load around, but overworking one node, running it out of memory, hitting CPU limits or something is often stuff that's left up to your operations team to figure out. They have to monitor the machines, put monitors on there and keep an eye on things. If a machine starts climbing up and its memory usage is starting to go too high or the CPU is usage is starting to go too high, does Orleans do something about that for you or is that still more of an operations problem. So in terms of memory usage, Orleans doesn't monitor memory to make sure that you're not exhausting it because memory usage is actually very hard to, to accurately measure. How much memory can, can the operating system, for example, free up? Like because of the page cache and all sorts of other things. And for CPU usage, it's generally okay to run hot as long as you're still getting good response times. But Orleans does give you the tools to be able to say, okay, I need to go and provision some new unit of work, one of these grains somewhere, where should I best put it? Mm -hmm. And so by having that configurable placement, it'll say, all right, who's least loaded right now? And then place it over there. So you can make those choices about how exactly you want that whole big topology to look. Oh, nice. Yes, okay. So there are tools to kind of like help do some of the load leveling, but it sounds like it's not going to go as far as actually watching and saying, I have too many nodes running on me. I'm going to start to kick some out and try to push them somewhere else. It's not going to go to that level of, of managing loads. Yeah, Orleans will not actively go and say, okay, you're too busy. I'm going to take some work away from you. It's more like as new work comes, and in a way, it's kind of based on this hypothesis that you have this sort of sliding window of active users or, or active objects that you need to change over time. And so as some, you know, become disused and they fall out of memory naturally, you'll have others that are coming in. And so those will be provisioned on new machines. So each of these grains, can they be considered like a microservice? Yeah, you can consider grains. Actually, the first time I heard the term microservices, I think was in reference to actors. It was, it was a talk that someone gave and they were talking about how actors, you know, in the traditional kind of Erlang actor sense, are kind of like very tiny services, right? Mm. Because each one is like independent from other actors and they all have their own communication interface. And so mm. you can consider a runtime like Orleans or Okka as kind of like a microservice runtime where you have these 
tiny little services. You, you can go even further to call them like Pico services because instead of, let's say, you have an authentication service, you might have you know authentication for individual users being sort of distributed and spread out across a whole cluster. And like each one of these objects that manages like a single user is isolated in that sense, right? I mean, it really depends on how far you want to stretch the analogy, of course, like these things so useful, but but it's very similar. I could see that one of the uh, upcoming heavy users for distributed systems are probably the uh, the virtual game machines, you know, where all the compute, everything is done up in the cloud. And the only thing that's sent down locally is just the, the individual frames. Yeah. So like, for example, with Microsoft and xCloud, Project xCloud, where you're running, let's say, Xbox hardware, I'm not sure exactly what they're running. And I definitely don't want to you know, say anything too proprietary. But those, those kinds of things will be running on real hardware. And in that kind of case, you're more likely to see Orleans used as like a control plane similar to that multiplayer service setting rather than actually running, let's say, a grain that represents an entire uh, game with all of its GPU and, and other kind of heavyweight things. We tend to see these things grains being used for more light, well, sort of uh, less intensive processes, not like an entire game system. I see. Any more questions for Ruben? Why or Joel? Or should we move on to picks? Yeah, I think that was a great overall summary. If you want to do some sort of, Ruben has any closing kind of stuff he wants to talk about, kind of a wrap up about the technology, we do that. Anything we didn't cover? Picks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's nothing I really wanted to sort of talk more. Just what, what's the future like for Orleans? Is there or anything um, we can for in the future? Oh, totally. So we're working at the moment on Orleans 4.0. So we made Orleans 3.0 release, I think it was late 2019, with a whole lot of new changes, including like completely rewriting networking, the whole scheduler. We used to have a dedicated thread pool. And, and at the time when Orleans was first written, because it, it's been around since I think 2010, maybe 2011. At that time in the old .NET framework, it was more efficient for us to run our own dedicated thread pool with carefully managing threads and different things. But especially now with .NET Core and all of the optimizations I've made in the thread pool, we found that actually it's more efficient just to run everything in the same shared thread pool. You get less context, which is less threads overall. And so we yanked out the old scheduler and now we're using the thread, the, the shared.NET thread pool scheduler, which scales really nicely. It has some downsides, which is that Orleans used to be kind of insulated from, from users doing things to hurt themselves. Like let's say you made some blocking scenario calls, right? Like you call into a web service and you do a dot wait on that asynchronous thing. And in, in the past, Orleans would be insulated from that because it has its own threads. But now, because they're shared, if you starve that thread pool, you end up starving the whole process. So there's good parts and bad parts. If you if you do it nicely, there's, it's all good parts. But upcoming is Orleans 4.0, and we're doing a major overhaul in how these grains are identified. So in the past, it was a kind of complicated system maybe where you could say, okay, this object is identified by a GUID, and this object is identified by an integer or a string. And now I said, okay, let's keep it simple. Everything is identified by a string. And there's a lot of other changes that are coming along with that. Cool. Exciting. All right. Thanks, Ruben. It was great to get to know the Orleans and what it can do for people and learn about you. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a 
breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. At the end of our show, we like to do what's called picks. And we just kind of mentioned things to our listeners. It doesn't have to be tech-related. It could be a movie, could be a book, video, anything that you want there. So I guess I will kick it off this week with my pick. And being kind of the middle towards end of the summer, I've been thinking about a lot about my lawn. I like it to look nice, but I don't like to spend a whole lot of time with it. So I found a YouTube channel of a guy that's actually out of Iowa. And he does a lot of videos on different things to do with your lawn, how to renovate it, how to deal with troubles in your lawn, fungus and things like that. His lawn himself actually kind of looks like a golf course, you know, right on the fairway there. He'll mow it down to like a half an inch, things like that. And it still looks great. So my pick this week is Ryan Moore Lawn Care. So if you have a yard you want to take care of, look at his videos and see what he has to offer. Yeah, one of the things I decided when I first bought a house was that I did not want to like manage lawn so we just ended up just getting fake grass everywhere (laughs) (laughs) do not regret the decision at all do you have a big do you have a big lawn or small it's not even a big lawn it's just i just don't want to be mowing it every every week yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. if if i only had a couple hundred square feet of of lawn yeah i'd definitely go fake too yeah it it was pretty expensive yeah so what's your pick why so this week my pick is the show on amazon prime or it might not be on amazon prime in america but it, it is in australia it's called it's called superstore it's just a show where it's, it's just about a bunch of employees and they work at like a kind of like a Walmart type store. It's, it's, it's a good show to kind of just binge, I guess, because it's only like 20 minutes long each episode. And maybe it's just like my generation, but it's I, I like shows that are only 20 minutes long because it's kind of like a shorter like a commitment, I guess, even though sometimes I'll sit there and watch it for two hours. So like, yeah, it's just a, it's just a nice show. All right. And Joel, what's your pick? Great. Well, I've got something very basic for you, Sean. It is... Vertigo shower sandals. I've purchased these on Amazon and they're great. They just slip on super easy. They're so cheap. I can leave a pair in my car in case it like gets hot out. I'm tired of my wearing my shoes or whatever. My feet get hot. And shower like, sandals? Yeah, they're like 13 bucks and they're like almost indestructible and I wear them everywhere. They've been fantastic. Is this for like people? This is for like people with athletes' feet, or uh, not necessarily. I mean, if it's, it's summertime, I wear sandals anywhere for just whatever reason, and uh, I just don't like having my feet be really hot. So they come into use just kind of at random times. So like if I finish playing tennis or something, and you know, my feet got a little hot and sweaty, I'll pop them, pop off those, and grab a pair of shower sandals. I leave in the car, and just I'm good to go. Or if I'm in the house and need to walk out, take out the garbage or something like that, there's another pair sitting right by my desk. So. These cheap little shower sandals have been revolutionary. I thought it was comfortable as Crocs. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> you know, Crocs. I've never had Crocs, but Crocs have that whole closed toe thing and all that. They just look more complicated to me. 
Cool. All right. All right, Ruben, what do you got for our listeners? So I, I like podcasts on history. And one that I've been listening to lately is called The Fall of Civilizations. I think there's only about maybe 10 episodes of it so far. But the podcast covers uh, civilizations like the Sumerians or you know Rome or Byzantium, other civilizations, how they came to power, rose, and then how eventually they fell. One thing I like about it especially is that they're very broad. You know, they're not too Eurocentric. They have civilizations from all across the world in all sorts of periods of time, which is very interesting to me. They're not talking about current day as well, right? With COVID and everything. <laughs> give, give it a few years and we'll see for the episode on America. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. All right. So if our listeners have more questions about Orleans or want to reach out and, and ask you questions, how can they get in touch? So Twitter is a good way. My handle is at Ruben Bond, or you can jump in on Gitter or GitHub and, and drop us a line. Awesome. Great. Thanks for your time today, Ruben. One last thing is we'd like to hear from our listeners on how the show is doing and what things that they think we can do better. So if they want to reach out to the show and in touch me, get in touch with me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at at.net superhero. So no capes though. No capes are bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of adventures in.net. See you later. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.